Bible, please, open to 2 Timothy. We will begin reading there in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Father, thank you this morning for your word as it begins to guide us and direct us into all truth. And I ask that this morning you would Guide me to speak the truth that is in your word about the persecutions and the resulting need to love our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. When preparing a sermon, I go back through it and try to get rid of the word I to make sure there's not much of me in it. But this morning, I will partially break that rule in a different kind of sermon I would not typically do, which includes some personal observations. So let me just repeat verse 12 again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. According to this verse, this promise there should be some sober reflection and concern and preparation for believers determined to live that life. And we can see from the scriptures, especially the lives of the apostles after Jesus ascended, there are two things affecting the promise of persecution which these verses reveal. And that is, one, the extent to which we are, can we say, godly in Christ Jesus. In other words, maintaining fundamental biblical truths and not wavering from them. Paul here describes his life as one of obedient faith. And two, the extent of evil and ungodliness which surrounds those who want to live that godly life in Christ Jesus. In these verses, Paul alludes to some severe persecutions that are upon him. What about us? You and I here at this church, we hopefully see both of those as describing our situation. The first in the positive, that we are committed to Christ, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and to the second, in a realistic way, recognize the extent to which evil and ungodliness are rapidly consuming the culture. So then... Regarding persecution, we've got to get our minds made up and our plan of action ready. But note that if one either embraces or tries very hard to simply ignore as best they can the ungodliness now consuming the culture, or alternatively, one is always surrounded by nothing but other loving Christians, not as much need to be thinking ahead about coming persecution. So the point of it all is, do we need to think forward and prepare our minds and hearts and actions in how to respond to persecution and in the midst of it to, importantly, love our enemies? Because the challenge of loving our enemies is tied together with persecution. Note in the Sermon on the Mount, note the flow. After telling us how to treat those who do us evil by turning the cheek, going the extra mile, he turns to loving our enemies. 
When I was born in early 1957, they were still cleaning up the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. from Dwight Eisenhower's inaugural celebration for his second term as president. As I grew older, I personally witnessed many of the milestones in America's history in real time. As a young boy, the neighbor kid running in the street, knocking doors to tell everyone, the president's been shot. Then later, in the depths of Vietnam, President Johnson, I shall not seek nor shall I accept the nomination for president. Then Nixon, effective noon tomorrow, I shall resign the presidency. Then Carter, in the oil embargo, this is the moral equivalent of war. Then Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And so right on up to the present. When I was 13 years old, I started my career as a newspaper carrier, which went on nearly my entire teenagerhood, right up into college, delivering my bike, car, and truck as years went by. So what does one do when he is folding paper seven days a week? He reads the paper. And so my life of paying attention, at least somewhat, to what was going on in the world goes back many years. And so as I speak today about persecution and the resulting need to love our enemies, I do so with a heightened awareness of what would appear to be mounting troubles or clouds on the horizon or whatever one might call the obvious change in the culture in relation to our faith, to Christianity. And importantly, and thus more urgently, the speed of that change. It is particularly evident to me, having witnessed in my brief lifetime, the changes which have occurred in our culture. For example, when I was very little, 50 of 50 states had criminal sodomy laws. When I became a teenager, 49 of the 50 states still had such laws. Today, we have legalized gay marriage. Here are some of the things which both the majority culture, along with the church, and I mean the Bible-centered, word-anchored church, held to, had in common when I began my brief life here on this earth. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Abortion is wrong and not to be tolerated. Pornography is wrong and not to be tolerated. Homosexuality is wrong and not to be tolerated. Children should only be born to two married persons. Prayer and biblical morals should be part of the teaching of the young and included in public school. One should always continue in the gender which matches their biology. There's a few. And so obviously, for many or most in our culture, those are all turned upside down, reversed, undone. And meanwhile, for the Bible-centered church, hopefully, that means you and I, nothing has changed. And so, we should not be surprised that along with those few examples, and there are many others, our deviation from the deviance of the culture puts us outside the mainstream that's a soft way of saying we are not submitting and so becoming increasingly vulnerable to being marginalized. No one has to be careful because Ecclesiastes warns us like this. Say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. But this is not about pining for days of old like some romanticism of kindler, gentler days. Rather, this is from a perspective of seeing, experiencing, knowing firsthand that there has been a radical change in a short time. And the radicalness is so especially apparent to someone as old as I am that it requires me to bang on the alarm bell just a little louder each year. And so now, 
today. Because the end result of all this will be our lives as Christians becoming more like the life in the Bible than what has been our American experience for a very, very long time. Now, let's know, lucky you and me, not only does our all-powerful God do this as a foundation, he determines the number of stars, and then he gives to all of them their names. But Paul also reminds us Christians in Acts that, of course, also God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, but also having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So that means we're up. We're not on deck. Our time is now. This is the coming time allotted to you, especially to you young people, to get to experience this dramatic change coming upon the way the church is treated. And if you remain part of it, the way you are treated by the culture, the people, and many who will ultimately become what would normally be defined as your enemy, who you and I must love. Since this is now at a point of radical change, rather than just wring our hands and say, woe is me, we must understand what is persecution and what is loving our enemies. The dictionary says persecution is hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. So if there is hostility and ill treatment, especially because of religious beliefs, then there must be a person or a group of people behind it. And that person could likely be described as a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something, and that definition is the definition of an enemy. So persecution and enemies go together, and so as we talk about the coming and increasing persecution, we can say, yes, okay, I, I got that, got a good list of examples of persecution, but that leads us immediately to enemies, and when we get to our enemies, we get to something very difficult and much harder to deal with than acknowledging or listing persecutions. And this is Jesus' command to love our enemies who persecute us. Something we may not be very good at, haven't practiced much since, by the historical definition of real persecution, we have not really been persecuted, except probably mostly in our minor American ways. Now, the devil, he's an enemy. And unbelievers, they are enemies of God denying him. But today we are talking about people who are enemies of God's redeemed people. And if Jesus' question, which commandment is the most important of all? And his answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Then loving our neighbors is top of the list as we love God and live our lives. And of course, we know our neighbors include our enemies. All we have to do is reread, if necessary, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Loving our enemies is central to the gospel. Because we see Jesus was better at loving his enemies than anyone who ever lived. He was horribly persecuted and suffered death, even death on a cross, yet without sin and responded in perfect love. Responding in love is not like on Love Songs 103. So it begs the question, what is love? What is it to love your enemy? We've got to think about it, define it, decide it, and live it. So like the rest of how we live the Christian life, there are two main parts to loving our enemies. There is the commission and the omission. There are the things we won't do as we love our enemies and the things we will do as we love our enemies. So we should start with the things we won't 
do. The first thing Jesus tells us to do. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And of course, Peter tells us this is just what Jesus did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this is the first point. We don't return evil for evil. Do not live by eye for eye and tooth for tooth like the Old Testament, the law and the prophets as it is called. And in there, in Leviticus, it says things like, if anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. But wait a second. Didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished? So how can he tell us not to respond to injuries the old-fashioned way, the way it had become common in Jewish teaching of Jesus' time? The verse right before tells us, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there is the answer in Jesus. The law is fulfilled. He fully explains and reveals its true meaning. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Originally, the law was an instrument by which men regulated life to coexist with evil by their own willpower, but it has changed in the way we respond to it. And how do we respond to it? Well, it depends on which two types of person you are. Are you a believer or not a believer? Are you born again or not born again? So when Jesus, in a sense, ups the ante, by saying, love your enemies, it goes along with believers having a changed heart. It's like the rest of the law to a non-believer. Their sinful nature denies and resists. But since Christ came, the Holy Spirit has broken into the world in a powerful way, saving large numbers of people to love the law and have power to follow it. And even if we try hard enough, actually obey and submit to love our enemies. And this is so very key. Loving enemies? How? With the love of Christ placed in born-again hearts. It's got to be this. Not old hearts, but new hearts miraculously and mercifully given sovereignly to believers by God according to His will and purposes. In the love chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians, Paul explains love in detail. Patient, kind, endures, hopes, it never ends. Other things will pass away, but when we are face to face with Christ, this love will remain. So it is this kind of love, the way the Bible describes it, to love our enemies. It's definitely supernatural love coming from a new born again heart. This love is self-renunciation for the sake, the good of others, saying, I'll lose a false reputation as one who fits well in the world, is liked by many, is not a weirdo Christian, not a weirdo holding to the scriptures. Rather, I'll be one who's not going along with the advancing culture. One whose character and status and position in life is found in and through Christ. Is this going to cause problems? Yes. Because the kingdom of God, by Jesus' coming, has broken into the kingdom of this world, but evil still prevails. And for a time, evil will overcome the good. In loving our enemies now, we are living out the conflict which will cease when Jesus returns. But for now, we live in it. There will be big changes when Jesus returns. Many who are last now, they will be first. Those who are humbled now will be exalted. 
Those who lose their life will find it. But loving others, that doesn't change. That part of the kingdom begins now and continues imperfectly now and perfectly then. The goal of our lives as believers is to love and glorify God through Christ. The ultimate goal of unbelievers is to love themselves and seek their own glory. And so the inevitable permanent conflict is in place. It is foundational. And so as the greater self-love and God unglorifying comes and expands, so does the conflict. We should note when Jesus came, he brought about radical change away from both a legalistic religion, Judaism, and paganism, ungodliness, and he met with great resistance. Today for us, it's a bit different because we live in our culture we continue advocating what was a reasonably decent reflection of biblical principles as it devolves back into flagrant paganism. Paul confirms the natural, perpetual, over and over historical course of ungodliness. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, Passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And then, there are things we must do besides what we must not. Not reviling, insulting, or attacking in response to persecution from our enemies. We've got to do things to bless them in several ways. Apart from recalling Jesus' words to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give your cloak and tunic, one of the first things we must do to get our minds set on the right course is to recall what Paul says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's the ultimate source of conflict, though it's expressing itself in the hearts and actions of unbelievers, resulting in evil prevailing and thus persecution, and thus we have enemies. Enemies who could just as easily become our friends as we would like them to be if they became born again, they turn to the Lord for forgiveness of their sins, if the veil were taken away, if the Holy Spirit blew and gave them saving faith. So when we see our unbelieving enemies as blinded and in spiritual darkness, on the conveyor belt ushering them to the abyss of their eternal fiery home, then we more readily say yes to Paul when he says not to take revenge on your enemy, but rather... Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And that blessing includes physical care. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And spiritual care. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He's being a Jew to Jews, weak to the weak. So Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I guess this means we can't be aloof, but let our light shine even when others work to snuff it out. Standing firm in our convictions, but loving each person. Knowing and saying what is wrong and sinful, but pointing to redemption. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Hating the sin and loving the sinner, which we redeemed all once were, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And there is even a greater call in loving your enemies because Jesus says, and if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So buried in there is a very high standard to even be greeting our enemies. He's not just your enemy when he's hauling you to court or shutting down your school or church or suing your business. He's still your enemy when he sleeps and walks and eats and just lives. But when you run into the lead attorney at the vending machine after the judge has bankrupted your cake-baking business, we need to remember to offer to buy him a cup of coffee. Living like Peter says, sojourners and exiles, like we really are a vapor, holding what God gives us loosely. This makes it much easier to love enemies. When security is in Christ, not my self-protection from enemies of the cross. If our treasure is in heaven and we know where our heart is, if we are sure about God that will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This makes loving easier. But ultimately, it's got to come from the heart. Not loving enemies to show God we are worthy of redemption and eternal life, but our born-again heart always remembers we are this way only because, like Paul says, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So then we can do, like Peter says, about our mind and heart towards others as Christians. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And one more positive thing we must do for our enemies, pray for them. And will you note, this is the greatest call to believers to do out of all these things. Even an unbeliever can take these actions we've been talking about up to this point. Abstain from reviling or cursing, rather doing good things, acts of love, greeting and helping people who oppose them and want to persecute them. But recall what God says through Peter, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Like James tells us, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. As believers, his ears are open to our prayer. He hears us asking to glorify himself in delivering us, thwarting the enemy, or even, even saving the enemy and bringing them into the kingdom. So, Paul tells Timothy, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And what's a good reason that he gives us? This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now it seems the more fierce the persecution and the love shown the enemy in the midst of it, the greater the good news of Jesus Christ becomes apparent. The light shines. And Peter gives us some basics about how to be prepared to go about loving our enemies. After stating we may suffer for righteousness, he says firstly, have no fear of them nor be troubled. So we must not give way to fear. That's easy to say, hard to do, and that really is a whole other sermon. Secondly, he tells us, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this is important because it requires us to have a thorough biblical knowledge. And is it fair to say if we don't have that, if it's a strong dose of persecution, we may waver. Not only unable to give a reason for the hope in us, but to lack hope and thereby lack love to our enemies We've got to be able to confirm to ourselves that what we believe, what we are standing on, is really true, and so respond with solid biblical answers. To continue loving our enemies in the face of persecution, knowing our blessing for doing so, may come only much later. 
even after we've left to be with Jesus. And thirdly, we have to follow directions. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Standing firm with a clear conscience because we love our enemies in a proper way. If they slander, if they revile, and we don't, our conscience remains clear and there's no shame on our part but on theirs. When is their shame coming? Someday. Maybe a very distant day. Now, what about the inevitable conflict between laws? God's law and state law. Well, to begin with, we in our culture may feel self-empowered in a way Paul or Peter and the other apostles would not have They lived in a kingdom with an absolute authority. There was no power to the people. We live in a culture whose basic document of law starts with we the people. But Paul, of course, says to submit to the governing authorities. And he did function, obviously with great difficulty, under the various kings and despotic rulers, just keeping his focus on the task by grace which God gave him This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in theory, Paul and Peter and us should be able to proclaim the good news to all people for their salvation in a godly culture which results. The reason we might say this is because of what Paul says in Romans. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Starts out making sense. We don't want anarchy. Then he continues. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Well, now we might start to wonder if that is always true. Then he goes on. Do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Again, we might say to ourselves, I'm not sure that is correct or always true. A simple reading seems to say we should expect the government to protect us from persecution. But of course our fallen, sinful world doesn't work that way. There is a deep spiritual problem in the hearts of people which often derails the proper role of government, actually turns it upside down in many cases, and they are really not going to give us approval when we do good, just the opposite. Nevertheless, We must engage the culture to stand firm against the ungodliness engulfing it. Of course, importantly, we must recognize that ultimately the solutions are not political at root. Political where we could focus all our efforts on changing laws or making new laws. Some efforts, yes, but not our primary efforts. One commentator described it this way. We might still just be throwing inkwells at the devil. But of course we know real life is very complicated. We are challenged to make right decisions informed by scriptures. There is, of course, civil disobedience in the scriptures, but it is limited. The Hebrew midwives, they ignore the king's command to kill Jewish babies. Daniel, he refuses to worship the golden statue. Peter and the other apostles refused to submit to the Sanhedrin to stop proclaiming the salvation that is in Christ. And media has been highlighting cake bakers and florists and county clerks and others in America who have disobeyed the law and suffered for it. Of course, it's nothing like Christians in the Middle East or in other areas of mass persecution and death. It is a difficult issue. So the correct action in each conflict between God's law and state law depends on the exact circumstances and the response being fully informed and guided by the scriptures and in church community. And of course, it must be while we are loving our enemies. In the ministry of Jesus, he gave us some helpful examples of dealing with people in situations which guide us in how we love our enemies. And that's not just to be passive, loving in our hearts, 
to become pacifists as we turn the other cheek. Discussions of this topic of enemy love can often lead to pure pacifism. But recall, I am to overcome evil with good. And a few times when we look at Jesus, we can be perplexed because we see Jesus at the temple doing what some would say is not very loving toward a large group of wrongdoers. Here, Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And also, when Jesus is speaking to a crowd with scribes and Pharisees, he says things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Woe to you, blind guides! You blind fools! You blind men! Meanwhile, Jesus taught that everyone who was angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell fire. But Jesus is never contradicting himself. These things can be very controversial and many commentaries written about them, but one thing I glean is the stand against a system of wrongdoing is somewhat different than individually loving persons. In both cases, Jesus is against a system that is corrupt. The temple is to be a house of prayer, and the Pharisees lead people astray. So Jesus says to them, You make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And in Jesus' fight against unrighteous systems, there is a built-in love for people, even for those who are enemies, because they are essentially anti-Christ, leading people away rather than toward God. So I think we can see Jesus' call for active enemy love, not a laser focus on the political, but a proper resistance to corrupt systems or injustice, not overturning tables, but actively loving enemies in that resistance. And Jesus, with individual persons who need correction or rebuking, he does things like this. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Even the chief of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, received a loving rebuke and the gospel from Jesus. So now, why? Why should I love my enemy? Many reasons. We live in a divisive, crude culture. Let's face it. It has become much more coarse with less deference to dissenting opinions and fair discussion. So we can hear someone speaking about our enemy in the culture or in the media in very vulgar ways and we can think, that enemy really deserves it. Good for them. Let them have it. Then we can think, well, I'm a Christian and I can't speak or act like that, but I'd love to do it. Darn it, but I'm a Christian. So let's say I don't want to love my enemy. So I don't love my enemy. Let's say I hate my enemy. That is pleasant to our sinful nature and feels really good. But what is the end result to me and you? This is the flip side, the result of not loving our enemies. Firstly, I am bitter in my heart. I live in anger. I soak in it. And meanwhile, my enemy may never give it a thought. We might be like Auntie M when the mean witch lady takes away Dorothy's dog, Toto, and Auntie M says, For 20 years I've been dying to tell you what I think of you, but being a Christian woman, I can't. That's a lot of living in bitterness. Secondly, I'm not trusting God's promises of blessing. Thirdly, I do just what my enemy expects, what he may even want, what may make him think he's done good after all. It give him a sense of accomplishment, and then he won't be put to shame. Like Peter says, if instead we love them. If we are acting like Christ, 
then in loving our enemies, we are, as Paul says, a fragrance. We are the aroma of Christ to others. And finally, my heart will not be in a right condition to pray. It's hard to pray sincerely when you are living in anger and unlovingly. Why else love my enemy? You're commanded to as a believer. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of living like Christ. Paul says simply, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And blessings? Jesus promised some major blessings to his disciples for obedience. When they all met the rich ruler, and Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and follow him, this amazed the disciples who thought wealth was a sign of being in good with God, and it confused them. So they wanted to know, what then was all this difficult following of Jesus? What was it good for? Who then can be saved? What then will we have? But Jesus assures them they will be blessed. They will receive eternal life. There is reward for following in obedience Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Lots of blessings in following after Christ, but it says it comes with persecutions. But is not being persecuted and being challenged to love our enemies? Is that not supposed to be part of our life? Sometimes severe? Look what the enemies of Jesus did to him. Tortured our Savior, the one we love. I don't know about you, but for me, meditating on the bloody, perfect, loving Son of God on the cross, I need a trigger warning because that is the maximum emotional trigger for me, puts me in an unsafe place. And Peter, he was not going to stand for that, his friend and savior and future ruler of all on earth to be crucified. When Jesus told them he was going to suffer the ultimate persecution and be killed by Jewish leaders, Peter said, no way, never. But Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. This is why he came. Came to lay down his life for those who would be saved from God's wrath. And this happened through persecutions by his enemies, who, by the way, at the end, were prayed for by the dying Jesus. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What was the message about Paul when he was first saved? Those first instructions from God? He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's quite an initial job description. Has every Christian in history been persecuted? No. But these verses tell us all the blessings of the gospel may very well come with persecution, which inevitably challenges us to love our enemies. So why do we make enemies? And why is this more urgent now to make ourselves prepared to love our enemies? Well, when we look at some main reasons we make enemies, I think we can see why it is a bit more urgent First, we are simply different. You can, in the right setting, just be identified as a bad person by your existence as a Christian. In its simplest form, you may mess up the room because the swearing ebbs away when you walk in. Your very existence as an out-of-the-closet Christian can cause discomfort. Jesus makes this clear. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
The world loves people who conform to and embrace its values. If we did, we would gain the world's love. We can do that. We can do that by being part of a liberal Christian church which folds under pressure so they adjust and reconfigure their Jesus so that he, in their mind, he really is like the modern world after all. Secondly, if you are a Christian, they hate you because they hate Jesus. Jesus says so. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that's where we started out with our passage at the beginning. Those are promises to you and I. If we claim the name of Christ, we will be hated, have enemies. Finally, we proclaim an absolute unalterable truth which says this is right, this is wrong. So if there is more objective wrong, then your objective truth is more offensive. We don't change or water down his word so the gap grows ever wider between the unchanging truth, the rock of Christ, the foundation versus the massive increase in ungodliness. One reason I wanted to preach what is for me a somewhat unusual kind of sermon is that I need your help. In our community, together, we're going to need to help each other. Joe has included these topics in his past sermons. Today, this is, may I say, the first shot across the bow sermon focusing solely on persecution and loving our enemies. But it still has not really hit. Some may describe it as a coming earthquake, but that strikes with no warning. What we have is more like a tsunami. It's described by observers as an ever louder roar coming from far away, with the first wave being the smaller one. One survivor described it like this. As far as I can see, the whole horizon is like a, a white wall. I'm thinking, what is that? The horizon is no longer flat and blue with a line between the sky and the sea. Instead, it looks like a white wall and it's coming toward us. It wasn't fast moving, but you look at it and then you realize, oh no, it's a big wave coming. So we told everybody, put on your life jackets. You see, as a Christian, I can testify I have, over many years, by God's power, with challenges and with failures, really tried to follow what Jesus says to do. Be salt and light. To let my yes be yes. To give, to pray, to fast, to not look at women with lust, not to worry, not to be a hypocritical judger, but loving enemies. At that one, I have limited experience. Loving true enemies, those who want to shut you down and up and out, or worse. I actually get very angry when I hear about persecutions here in America, and I think about how nice it would be to strike back and trounce those horrible people, and that's wrong, and shows I am in need of a better way to respond in my heart and in my actions. Compared to what I read in the Bible, and in this new book right here, we American Christians all have very limited experience. But we must be prepared because we are going to get some practice. Like many things in life, there's a line from the movie Casablanca which fits the situation at hand. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Unless Jesus comes back, unless Jesus brings a revival, and can we hope in that? It would appear we have a big problem, but we serve a much bigger God. There is a problem 
Some would look at it and say, what can we do? But we believers, we know the best thing to do. The gospel is the answer. It changes one heart at a time. And by that, changes a hostile culture. Loving our enemies is part of the effects of the gospel on us redeemed believers, shining our light before men and proclaiming Christ is crucified for our sins, rising from death and returning to judge the living and the dead. That's the answer to the problem. It is ultimately, as we pray in each circumstance of how to love others, for God to glorify himself through Christ. So now we're all going to go home soon, and everything is probably going to be good, but the tsunami, it's coming. It's en route. And Jesus tells us the pre-engagement preparations. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And we know what happens when the big wave comes. So, let's end with Paul's statement. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We believers were overwhelming enemies against a holy God. If we understand the depth of our hatred, the foe that God was to us before we were given the gift of new birth, and know his torture and bleeding and dying was for us wicked, unsaved, worldly enemies of Christ, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We live by that truth. We'll be humbled, I hope, And that will help us be better at loving our enemies. Father, we know that you are absolutely, totally sovereign over all things. And we know that there is a fierce battle going on in the heavenlies, the spirit of the air, going about his destructive business. And so there are many, many enemies of the cross of Christ. Lord, please give us firmness in our assurance of your truth, of your word, of your promises that you will never leave us, never forsake us, that we indeed will, whether today or tomorrow, suffer the persecution that grows ever closer. And in that, our need to understand how to love our enemies, shining the light of Christ, you glorifying yourself as you did when you suffered, as your servants did when they suffered. We need your help to be prepared, to stand firm upon the rock, not to waver, not to give in, but to say, yes, the truth is the same Yesterday, today, and tomorrow because Jesus Christ is all those things and he is the truth. And we stand on that.